Our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 3. But before I begin there, I want to say a word. Several weeks ago, Ann Ford approached me with a question. Circle number two that meets on the sixth floor lounge at Westminster Canterbury had a discussion and they stumbled across a phrase that they didn't understand. They said, what is the unpardonable sin? Ellick was going away this weekend. I talked to him about it. He said, this is an opportunity for me to preach. And so I am taking this occasion to address the question of Circle 2 at Westminster Canterbury. They ask me, what is the unpardonable sin? This morning, I borrow a reading from last year's lectionary text for early June. And I think hearing this passage can at least help us begin to address this question and hopefully move us along to understanding something important for us. Hear the Word of God from Mark chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 20 through the end of the chapter. And the crowd came together so that they could not even eat. When Jesus' family heard it, they went out to restrain Him, for people were saying, He's gone out of His mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, He cast out demons. And Jesus called them to Him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. And then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus has a knack for stirring up trouble with the authorities. He heals a man on the Sabbath. And not only does he heal the man who has a withered hand, but Jesus gets angry at those who are bound by Sabbath rituals. He grieves at the hardness of heart of those who believe that Sabbath keeping is more important than healing the sick. 
healing someone who has a lifetime affirmity. Jesus exposes misguided thinking present in Israel. He challenges the leaders, the spiritual leaders of a land. And of course, conflict ensues. Faithful ministry always stirs up conflict. And I was so interested in this, I turned to our book of confessions and it's confirmed to me that many of our reformed confessions are written in a time of conflict. They're written in a season when the church is struggling and there needs to be a clear word. Well, out of conflict grows understanding and wisdom that guides our church. And I am convinced this morning that there are insights for us in this question. We need to follow it. There is conflict across our culture. There is conflict in every church that I know. And this morning, we need the wisdom that this question from circle number two provides for us. And so we have a journey to make. Now, I say we have a journey because this question, I believe, exposes a certain topography. There is a landscape in God's forgiveness, in the grace of God. There is a progression in the way this passage speaks about forgiveness. The physical landscape of Virginia is not unlike the physical landscape of my native North Carolina. That is to say, there is a coastal plain, there is a midsection that is known as the Piedmont, and there is a mountainous region in both states. There is a hot section, there is a comfortable midsection, and there are the cool mountains. Well, like the landscape of our commonwealth, there is a landscape of God's forgiveness. And this passage takes us from the heat of this question to wisdom that is lofty and high-minded. There is a landscape with God's forgiveness. It, It begins with a warning, and that warning moves into a promise. And the promise, I believe, allows us some significant insights. And so here's the lay of the land. We begin with a warning. We move to promise and end with wisdom. So let's start with a warning. Our reading opens with people in such turmoil that they cannot eat. They are saying, many of them, that Jesus is crazy. So crazy does Jesus seem to be that his family has come to do an intervention. And Mark records, some people are saying, he's gone out of his mind. Scribes from Jerusalem have come all the way down from the holy city into Galilee. And they are saying, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Now, Jesus cannot leave this alone. These spiritual leaders from Jerusalem claim that Jesus is evil. And Jesus has logic for them. He uses the logic with parables, so-called. It's interesting, we know, that Abraham Lincoln used this same argument when he was running for the U.S. Senate in Illinois in 1854. He was addressing the subject of slavery, saying that it had to be addressed or it would divide the nation, and you and I both know quite well it nearly did. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Even if Satan is divided, he cannot stand. How then is it possible for Jesus to rid people of demons, something good, if he's motivated by something bad? 
If Jesus cast out demons and is motivated by demons at the same time, he would be divided. And kingdoms and houses and Satan, says Jesus, and even Jesus himself cannot do anything if they are divided. Do you hear the logic? Jesus is being vilified. He is being attacked. This is not simple criticism. This is the deepest kind of slander. And to this slander, Jesus speaks gospel. He reminds people that they will be forgiven their sin. Whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be forgiven their sin. He promises. God's steadfast love endures forever. We've heard it in the Old Testament. It resounds through the New. But those who speak against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven. Mark notes that apparently some have said he has an unclean spirit, saying that about Jesus. And Jesus, of course, condemns no one. Make note of that if you look again at Mark 3. He condemns no one here. Jesus does not even cite his opponents as guilty of this deed. He offers a warning. Where is the sin? One scholar has said, what is at stake here is the truth about the saving power of God at work in the ministry of Jesus. Another scholar, Lamar Williamson, explains what Jesus is talking about is unforgivable because it rejects the very agent of God's healing and forgiveness. Rejects. However, he goes on, the intention of the text is not primarily to define the unpardonable sin or even less to equip us to be able to say who's guilty of it. Text doesn't do that. Jesus himself does not state that his adversaries have done so. Jesus issues a warning. When my family used to vacation at Wrightsville Beach near Wilmington in the 1950s, we would frequently walk to the south end of that beach. And we would look over into Masonboro Inlet. It was the largest inlet through which most boats of any size coming out of the marina there in Wrightsville would pass from the intercoastal waterway out into the Atlantic. It was a very deep channel, and the Army Corps of Engineers every summer, probably spring and fall too, had dredging uh, boats out there making sure that there was no shoals, no sand, that the inlet was clear. This inlet stretched some three or 400 yards across, and it always, to me, in calm weather or not, seemed rough and deep. And there was a large sign 10 feet high, I'm not kidding, 10 feet high at the end of Wrightsville Beach that read, Beware strong currents, no swimming allowed. Dangerous waters. These words were painted in red. And often I would walk there with my family, sometimes with my father, and I can even hear my father adding his own warning, something like, Fred, if you were ever here by yourself, don't ever be tempted to go in the water because you could be pulled out into the inlet and you could drown. And I always looked at Masonboro Inlet, thinking of that sign, and a a shudder comes over me now as I'm sharing this with you. It is a warning Well, Jesus' words here warn us of such danger. His words are perhaps intentionally ambiguous. What places one in mortal danger is considered deliberate rejection of the God at work in and through Jesus. 
And Jesus' words challenge, according to Lamar Williamson, a fixed position, a firm decision, not simple skepticism. So those who identify Jesus with an unclean spirit, those who claim he operates from Beelzebul, literally the Lord of the Flies, those who believe he is evil, these people are in a dangerous place. This is the closest we can come to identifying the unpardonable sin. Claiming that Jesus is evil, that the reconciliation Don Falls read about from 2 Corinthians 5 is evil, that this church is evil, that its intentions are evil, that the spirit coming out of all we're doing, that the music of this choir is evil. This may be the closest we can come to understanding the deep water of wrongdoing of the unpardonable sin. And we begin with a warning. We begin to feel the heat and understand the warning that Jesus gives us. Now, we need to move upriver. We make a journey up the James River into a cooler, more agreeable climate, and we come to a fall line, and we stop there. And that's what we've done. But with the topography of this passage, we move to the promise. In the heat of conflict, Jesus uses a promise to answer his accusers. He says that people will be forgiven their sins. And whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be forgiven their sins. Now, in in researching this question, I went back to the book of Confessions to consider what our heritage declares about sin, perhaps the unpardonable sin. And one of the clearest statements was in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In England of 1743, the Parliament wanted help for the Church of England, and a gathering of various denominational leaders met and created a document true to God's Word. And about sin in one instance, they said this, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Do you hear the good news? No sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. The Westminster Confession says that if people turn from their sin, they will be forgiven. But people who have adopted a fixed position, a firm decision, a deliberate rejection of God at work often do not change their minds. But occasionally they do. The author of 2 Corinthians 5 was such a person. Don read his words that the account of his change of heart is in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Saul is on the road to Damascus to attack and defame followers of Jesus Christ. His position is fixed. His position is firm. He rejects Jesus Christ. One could even begin to consider that he's guilty of this unpardonable sin. But the promise is realized. And Saul becomes the Apostle Paul by the grace of God. And he would remind us that you and I are given a ministry of reconciliation. In 1967, our country was in all kinds of conflicts. Vietnam was raging and there was not only a generation gap, there were claims of misunderstanding about race and gender and work to say the very least. The United Presbyterian Church USA wrote a confession. My professor at Princeton, Dr. Ed Dowie, was one of the primary authors. 
and about this reconciliation, this confession of 1967 says about Jesus, many rejected him and demanded his death, but in giving himself freely for them, he took upon himself the judgment under which all people stand convicted. God raised him from the dead, vindicating him as Messiah and Lord. The victim of sin became victor and won the victory over sin and death for all people. Now, I hope we hear the promise in Jesus' words echoed in two confessions of the Reformed faith that are 200 years apart. God forgives our sin because Jesus took upon himself the judgment under which everyone stands. And God forgives our sin because Jesus loves us and cares for the world. But we're not done yet. This promise takes us up into the high country. If we follow 64 West, you and I will soon see about Charlottesville, the the Blue Ridge of Virginia. You know that to be true. And if we follow Jesus' promise, we can make some applications for ourselves. It helps to follow this passage. For Jesus, you remember, it said at the beginning, is at home. He's in Galilee. And his mother and brothers come to where he is. Often in Middle Eastern villages, we don't know this to be true, but we can imagine by the sound of the, of the story we read, here is a home that has a courtyard surrounded by some kind of wall. And in these verses, it sounds as if Jesus' mother and siblings are somewhere on the outside. Did you get the fact they are standing? Don't miss that. They are standing. On the inside, there's a crowd sitting around Jesus. The family is standing. Jesus and those who are around him are sitting. Now, this feels awkward, and it is awkward. And someone says to Jesus, your mother and your brother and sisters, they're asking for you. Now, presumably, they're there for the intervention. He's crazy. They're going to take him away. Jesus uses the moment to teach something that people remember. He asks them, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around those near him and he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus just took on the family unit and challenges their ideas, a basic idea in the world's culture. He takes on his own family standing outside waiting for him. And who knows what happens? We're not told. But what's important is we encounter our faith family in the doing of God's will. This is a lofty idea. You and I encounter our faith family in the doing of God's will. Now, you and I may sit at a distance and talk about what's going on in the church. We may have opinions about leaders and where the church is headed. We may criticize and say all kinds of things. But Jesus believes that God's real family is realized in the act of doing God's will. Such an example may challenge all talk and encourage us all to put ourselves somewhere doing what God says. And if we believe in the forgiveness of God, know that at the very last, it ends with our doing what God says. Now, I would tell you, I have been to the top of Sharp Top. Do you know Sharp Top at the Peaks of Otter on the Blue Ridge? I've been there. I've walked up. I've also ridden up in the bus. 
And I've sat on top of this amazing mountain and looked east to Bedford and the surrounding countryside and the mountains and the, the uh, vicinity of Bedford and beyond is extraordinarily lovely. The heights of God's forgiveness are lovely as well. And they remind us the importance of being the family of God. That is to say, of doing what God says together. Well, today we recognize the landscape of God's forgiveness. The unpardonable sin, beware attributing to the Spirit, beware attributing to Jesus, beware attributing to God evil and wrongdoing. And be careful about your allegiances. But know this, God forgives sin. God forgives your sin. God forgives mine. And God is only too willing to reconcile us to God and to one another. And remember this, as Alec often reminds us, we are created for good works. And today and this week, as Caritas workers are busy caring for our neighbors, look around and see God's family, just as Jesus promises. Can you see now the landscape of God's forgiveness? It has warning. It has promise. It has insight. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, this day we're grateful for the reality of Your peace in Jesus Christ, Your grace that upholds this congregation. Forgiveness, just as Anna told the children, that fills this sanctuary and church. Uphold us with Your forgiveness and move us to the high places of obedience to Your will. We ask that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.